All right. Romans chapter 9 and verse, we'll start reading this time in verse number 19. Thou will say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault for who hath resisted his will? You know what the answer to that question is in verse 19? Everybody. That's who? Everybody. Everybody's resisted his will. Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? So everybody, if every man, including Adam, which is, the, which is where man fell at in Adam, there's no, when you're dealing with grace, you don't, you don't really have the right to ask questions like this. If you've done nothing worthy to get into a man's grace or to get into a man's favor, if you've done nothing worthy of that, what, uh, what business do you have to ask anything at all? It'd be like a child breaking into a man's backyard, jumping into his fence, playing on his swing set, breaking the swing set, and the man comes out and turns the floodlights on you and starts you know, giving you the third degree. What are you doing in my backyard? Well, hey, you left the gate open. No, you don't have a right to say anything like that. So here you are, you're found in God's backyard. And he's going to kill you because you're trespassing. God has a sign on his front door that says, Trespassers will be shot on sight. That's the kind of God I serve. <laughs> but no, you, you don't find yourself in his backyard breaking his stuff. And then God said, well, I'm going to have mercy on the people I want to have mercy on. I'll let the ones that I want escape. And the ones that I don't want to escape, I'll shoot you in my backyard. You're going to argue with him? How can you? Well, that's a, that might be a silly illustration, but that's exactly what's going on. All you humans are in God's backyard. He created you for eternal life, and you sinned against Him. The wages of sin is death. You should be shot and buried in His backyard and forgot about. Some of you He's going to let live. That happens to be the one that wants to say, you can't tell me whose backyard to be in. It's the person that gets down on their knees and say, please, Mr. Homeowner, I'll never do it again. See how, how simple that is? That, that, that makes perfect sense without having to unscrew the unscrutable. God bless the man. I hope he does well in his life, but that's retarded. That's a retarded way to approach the Bible. It is. Because the context is all there. And you can see it clearly, can't you? Because that's what it is. You don't have to drag Galatians or Romans 2 into this. All you got to do is read what it says. God will have mercy on whom He will. If you want to argue with Him about it, if you want to argue with God about it, just remember, you don't, you're not arguing from a position of authority. You're arguing from the position of a rebel. I've done what I wanted to do and you're going to shoot me for it? It's not a, it's not a smart argument. It's like these guys on YouTube, they, the cop pulls them over. He's got a right to pull them over. He's got a badge from the state that says he has a right to pull you over. You have a license that you took voluntarily from the state to drive on public roads. And you're going to sit there and argue with the guy. You don't have the right to pull me over. I'm a sovereign citizen. No, you're an idiot. You took the driver's license. You took it. You signed up for it. You paid money to get it. You're going to tell them that they don't now have right to, the right to pull you over. You're driving on his street. They're my street. I paid the taxes. Who'd you send the money to? Did you send them to your address? It's not your street. The street belongs to everybody. Everybody decided that the speed limit was this. How did everybody? They sent a guy to office. You don't like him? Vote him out. Ask him to raise the speed limit. He's not going to do it.
You could hire your third. Co- you could hire your third cousin to be the mayor of Kenton. They're not changing the speed limit just because he's your cousin. He might even let you get by with speeding, but that's corruption. That's not honesty and goodness. This is God's world. You're existing on His world. It's His dirt. It's His air. It's it's His blood. It's His life. He gave it to you. Just because you've made a mess out of it, you don't have a right to say, well, why are you holding this against me? Because you're in my backyard. That's why. That's the answer. Nay, but old man, who art thou that repliest against God? You, know, you might run into a corrupt cop. You, you might argue with him on the side of the street. You're not going to win that argument because he's in the position of authority. You resist, he'll beat you up, put you in cuffs, put you in jail. You have a lawsuit. You might could even have a lawsuit and have him fired, but he was still right. In most cases. I hope he was right. Nobody wants to, but God's not corrupt. That's the thing. That's why you can't argue against him. You can't take him to court. You can't sue him for being a corrupt God. Shall the, shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made him thus? And to me, that's a better sermon on the sovereignty of God than any Calvinist have ever, has ever preached because that is the absolute... That's not philosophy about what we think about God. That's what the Bible says about God's sovereignty right there. <clears throat> if we... Like, you're a, you're a believer in God. You're a child of God. Have you ever stop to say you know like something bad happened to you maybe it was somebody else's fault and then you start praying along the lines of well Lord I didn't really deserve this I I was doing this I've been witnessing for you I've been reading my Bible I believe the Bible I'm like the person you love most in the Bible is the person that believes you you ask Moses how long will it be before they believe me and I believe every word in this book even the covers (laughs) I believe the book from cover to cover even the covers but why are you letting this stuff happen to me that's that's the kind of thing that's going why hast thou made me thus that's the question that comes up even in the heart of a believer We, we still as believers have characteristics of the hard hearted man that's just trying to justify himself with God like Lamech and Cain Cain kills his brother. God puts a mark on him and protects him. Lamech says, well, I was just doing it in self-defense. Surely God's going to protect me. Surely. Surely God's going to protect me. I've read the Bible. Surely God's not going to let nothing happen to me. It's justification, self-justification. But God will still let stuff happen to you. He surely will. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? You know in in the book of Timothy he says that in a great house there's vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. And that's about 1 and 2 Timothy is about his house. And in God's house there are vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. That's not exactly the same context here but I thought that I'd point that out for you. The characteristics are still going to show up in the life of Christians. As far as being hard and or humble. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with, mu- with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? And that he and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afford prepared unto glory. Even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. 
And that's, uh, so that's a pretty good statement in itself. I mean, that's, that's a good enough answer to God. God is going to, ultimately, God is going to show His wrath and He's going to show His mercy. And so little questions like, why did God do this or why is God doing that? Those really don't matter. You're dealing with the holy God that can do whatever He wants. Godliness with contentment. And Paul says, he said, I found, he said I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And so Paul getting like run out of town, stoned, has to escape in a basket, shipwrecked. I mean, <laughs> has to fast all the time, getting beat with stuff. And he doesn't reply against God. He's, you know, well, I guess I'm lucky to be alive. And that's part of his greatness. He's like always getting beat up, but he's a superhero. You think about it. He's always, it always seems like he's on the losing end. He gets out of one problem and falls right into another. And gets the worst end of the stick most of the time and comes out on top. He's like a superhero. But at any rate, why does God allow that? Because God's long-suffering and one day He's going to take those that are cast down and lift them up. He's going to take those that are exalted and jerk them down and put things in the right place. And so that's exactly what He's saying. What if God, willing to show His wrath and make His power known, God's willing to... To avenge, but it's just not going to do it in our in our time. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? Why didn't God kill some of these politicians that are? They're not just corrupt; they're visibly corrupt. I mean, the Clintons, for example. There, there is so much evidence on the Clintons in plain view. It's like you're wondering, why don't the FBI just go arrest them right now? Why wouldn't they do that? Everybody that gets involved with them accidentally commits suicide on the street corner at 2 a.m. in the morning. How, how does that not stick? How does a, an E3 in the Navy go to jail, go to prison for taking a picture of something classified and they find classified stuff on this lady and nothing nothing happens she writes a new book and makes a trillion dollars how does but see you ask questions like that and sometimes the answer to stuff like that is what if god willing to show his wrath and make his power known endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction god's gonna destroy people like that power mad power hungry wicked people whether they're politicians or preachers, whether they're secular or religious, God is going to destroy them utterly and totally. And we've had to put up as Christians for, with hardship and persecution for 2,000 years. And one day God's going to go, okay, this is over. It's going to exalt you and cast them down. And it's going to be so, so complete and thorough that it's never going to, raise up again so he says I'm that's the way I'm willing to do things even us whom he hath called not of the Jews only but also of the Gentiles there your Gentiles all this stuff God doing for the Jew he's going to also do for us as he said as he saith also in Osi I will call them my people which were not my people and her beloved which was not uh, not beloved and it shall come to pass that in the place see it's not a matter of predestination of one gets destroyed and one gets exalted 
It's not this group of people going to have mercy and this group of people going to be hardened. Because look at the transition here. He says, as, as he saith also in O, see, I will call them my people which were not my people. See, they were on the outside. They were part of the hardened group. They were part of the people in darkness. So you can't go back to the Old Testament and say, well, all these Gentiles are predestinated to be lost because they're Gentiles. No, they were in darkness for a reason. Go, go back to the Tower of Babel. You'll find the origin of their darkness. Okay, that's because they're predestinated. No, they're not predestinated. Their life led them to that place. Now God said, now these people that weren't my people, I'm going to make them my people. What, they get re-predestinated? No, God didn't change his mind. Something happened to those Gentiles that made them change their mind. That's what repentance is. Well, what was that? Well, God gathered about, you know, anywhere between 12 and 120 people together and said, y'all go preach. As they preached, the lights come on. Those Gentiles said, hey, nothing to this Diana stuff. They started believing. Now the lights come, come on for the Gentile and the lights go off for the children of the, the physical seed of Abraham who are Jews. Okay. That's, that's what's going on. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. John 1, 11 and 12. Esaias also crieth concerneth Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. It will seem like a long time, but this is going to turn out to be a, a short work. Oh, by the way, Esaias is Isaiah and Osi is Hosea. Just in case you were wondering about that. Uh, what shall we say then? Verse 30. No, verse uh, 29. And as Esaias said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been as Sodoma and had been like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. There's where the, the covenant of Abraham is connected. That's why, look back, let me show you something very interesting in Romans 4.1. Romans 4.1, what shall we say then that Abraham, our father, that's a New Testament Pauline passage, Abraham, our father, Abraham, our father. Uh, also, I don't know if I remember where the other passage is, but I, I think I could find it fairly quickly. I don't like to do this when stuff comes to my mind because I don't like to look for passages. But it's First uh, Corinthians chapter ten. I always take a great gamble. It'd be like thirty minutes of silence while I'm trying to find a passage. I, I don't like to do that, but thankfully I had a little idea where it was. First Corinthians chapter ten. Moreover, brethren, this is Corinthians, this is a Gentile church. Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers. Have you ever heard Old Testament saints referred to that way in, in preaching? No, so it's Old Testament and New Testament. It's us against them. But these are our fathers. Is this Pauline epistle? Written to Gentiles? We're dispensationalists, right? Abraham, our father. 
But then he's talking about the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, coming into the promised land. He said, our fathers, our fathers, were under a cloud. Something interesting to think about because you don't usually hear the Old Testament saints referred to as fathers to newborn, uh, excuse me, born again New Testament saints. You don't usually hear, especially in theological teaching and Bible classes and, and biblical preaching stuff like that. You just don't hear that said because they were one thing, we were another thing. And that's true. We are dispensationally separate. But as far as faith is concerned, we're right there. While the greatest majority of the nation of Israel wanted to go back into the, into the land of Egypt, there's one or two guys, literally one or two guys there that are walking by faith, keeping the rest of them from getting killed. So much so to the point that God, you know God had thoughts for, uh, for Joshua and Caleb. But at one point in one place, God said to Moses alone, Moses by himself, if you'll come over here and stand out of the way, I'll kill all these people and I'll make out of you a great nation. And God was going to continue the covenant of Abraham through one man, Moses. And Moses said, you can't do that. He said, if you do that, all them Egyptians will laugh and say you couldn't bring the people out. And God repented. God changed his mind. That's what the Bible says. It literally says God repented of the evil which he thought to do to them. It didn't say he was testing Moses. I mean, I kind of use it that way, that God was testing Moses, because in my mind, that's the way I can fathom it. But God didn't say he was testing Moses. It said he repented. He changed his mind, because Moses said, you can't do that. If you do that, then these Israelites are going to say you couldn't. It's almost like two regular men having, you know, you can't, you can't back down from Mike. If you don't whoop him, they'll say you. See, Mike, you got to jump on him because if you don't, you ever heard somebody talk that way? That's what Moses was doing. He's like, look, you can't do that. If you do that, Egyptians win. They're down there moaning and complaining and having funerals right now of all the people you've down the sea. Now you kill all these people up here too. They're going to say, oh, we, we were right after all. God said, mm, that's right. That don't make sense to me. In my, knowing what I know about God, it doesn't make sense. But that's what it says. Do we believe it or don't we? Oh, it was just a le- it was just a learning lesson for Moses. I, I can't fully. I I can, I can see that, but I can't fully. I can't fully accept it because it said God changed His mind. God repented. Do you realize what a big state? If I wrote it out on the board, God repented. That's a huge thing. That's a huge thing. But God was to the place where he said, I'll wipe all them out and I'll make of you a great nation. It doesn't say. He said, well, he was going to save Caleb and Joshua. It don't say that. You can say that all you want to. You can believe that. You can assume that. But the Bible is of no private interpretation. 2 Peter chapter 1. All you can do is go by what it says at the end of the day. And God said, you move over here, Moses. I'm going to kill all of them. And I'm going to start over again with just you. Just Adam, just Noah, just Abraham. It was going to be just Moses. And then when, God, when, when a man named David showed up, God said, I'm going to give you the sure mercies of David. A reference to David should have been stoned to death. 
But God started a new thing right there with David. Just one man. He's guilty. Nothing you can say or do about it. Public record. Right there's the dead baby. You're going to lie about that? You're going to cover that up? But I ain't going to kill you. Psalms 89 is the, is the largest picture of the New Testament covenant in the whole Bible. I, I, excuse me, in the whole Old Testament. Psalm 89, it's, it's New Testament doctrine. If his seed deserves killing, I ain't going to kill him. <laughs> that was, you know that's a paraphrase. But it's there. That's something that started with David. One man. And then Jesus shows up, one man. So, it's a, it's a large deal here. He said, uh, let, let's get on with it so we can finish up. Verse 28, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been in Sodoma and been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. Same thing Abraham had. Same thing Noah had. Same thing Abraham had. Same thing David had. Same thing Samson had. And all this ends up, chapter 9 and chapter 10, proving that God's still willing to save the Jews that had rejected him. Uh, but at any rate, what should we say then that the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. This was testified in the, in the life and the interaction of the leaders of the Jews, which is always going to be, it's always going to be the the marker for Israel. If you go back in the Old Testament, God dealt with the Israelites themselves as He dealt with their leaders. If it was a king, if it was a prophet, God always dealt with the people as with one man. A king could sin, God punished all the people of Israel because it was national. And if a king got right, God blessed the whole nation of Israel. All of them. And in the back walls, in the temple... They'd be worshiping idols. The king trying to do right. Trying to flush all that stuff out. And God would bless. And so that, that's, uh, that's the way it's going to work out. But in the time of Christ, it was the Pharisees were the leaders of the people. The religious leaders were their leaders. Their kings were foreigners. They were Roman appointed leaders. But their spiritual leaders should have been the Pharisees. Uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus, you're a master. That's who their masters were. Jesus said to the people of Israel, he said, he said, these Pharisees, he said, they tell you to do it, but they don't lift one finger. But they sit in Moses' seat, so you do what they say. Don't do what they do. That's what the Lord was talking about. These Pharisees are speaking for Israel. They said, we don't believe you. They caused the people to rise up against Jesus. The people that Jesus had healed, they caused those people to rise up against him. And so, the people of Israel, because it's corporate, under Abraham, their leaders rejected him, so the whole nation of Israel got turned aside. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. That's the difference between Old Testament theology and New Testament theology. The, the Old Testament is corporate from the beginning. 
The New Testament is individual. I come to you as an individual and say, do you believe in Christ? We start individually. Jesus come to the city of Jerusalem and said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets. See how he's talking to Jerusalem as one man. You know the whole city of Jerusalem didn't rise up and everybody cast a stone. That's not the way it worked. But they all got credit for it. So in the Old Testament, you get one nation or one city as a man. And if the one city mess up, it all goes into captivity. If the nation mess up, it all goes into captivity. And the good go with it. Daniel was a good man, but he had to go with them. Well, in this, in the New Testament situation, God comes to you as an individual. So, do you believe? You say yes, you get put into the corporate situation. The church, we, us. We talked about that last week. Wherefore, because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. Jesus Christ, who is he? He's an individual. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling block and rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. We're going to stop right there. we got about five minutes left, but I stole five minutes from you last week, so we're going to give that back to you. But just remember, I want to point it out from this point because it's going to come up next week as well. Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That does not mean if you believe in Jesus, you'll never be ashamed to stand up for him, to preach, to witness, to hand out a gospel tract. That is not what it says. Being ashamed or not being ashamed is not one of the prerequisites for being saved. Okay. What it means is, is if you believe on him, you'll... There will never be a reason for you to say, I'm sorry I trusted in him. And that's what, that's what the phrase being ashamed usually means in the scripture when you, when you run across it. It's that there's never going to, if you trust this and believe this and follow this, you're never going to have a, a correct reason or a right reason to say, I wish I wouldn't have done that. Because this works every time. You, put your, you can put your faith in good works. And you're going to, eventually you'll find reason to do that. I mean, I used to be the whole white shirt. <laughs> For a while, I was even like wear a red tie because that, that Puritan, you know, kind of an influence. But clean shaven because all the preachers before me said to have a real clean shave. Uh, but, you know, eventually there's reason to be ashamed of that kind of mentality because that's nothing more than performance. That's a performance and it may be, as Colossians says, wisdom and will worship. All these rules and regulations. But that's not... You, you're, gonna, you're always going to have reason to find fault and to have shame in the flesh. Boy, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I wish I wouldn't have put my faith there. I wish I wouldn't have put my trust there. I trusted in this disciplined security. This disciplined place that I found. Here's a place of safety. I'm going to put my going to put all my eggs in this basket and by performing it this way I'm always going to come out on top once you have that mindset the Lord going to let that crumble underneath you so that at the end of the day the way you got saved is the way in which you should be living every part of your Christian life once you say I'm going to preach this way and I'm going to act this way and I'm going to witness this way and I'm going to do it this prescribed way because this other preacher done it or this other group of preachers done it this way as soon as you put your confidence in that form, that form is going to bust up. It's just like the state of Delaware is going to build this super highway and we're going to make it out of the most, the most solid 
piece of uh, earthly elemental material that there is, concrete. And it turns out to be the roughest riding road in Delaware. It's the most insane trip that you can make through Delaware is up the concrete, I call it Minner Highway because they built it under her rule and reign in Dover. But it's ridiculously uncomfortable. And that's exactly the way building our own super highway through the Christian life. I'm going to do it this way and this way and this way. You're going to end up being ashamed of that. That's the long and the short of it. You walk by faith. You live by faith. You operate by faith. You pray by faith. You preach by faith. You do all these things. It just seems to come out right. I know sometimes I have spent hours writing out sermon uh, outlines. I'm going to, boy, I'm going to preach this sermon. And this is going to fit. And this is going to fit. And that's going to fit. And when I preach it, it drools out my mouth and leaks over my Bible and off the end of the pulpit. And it makes no earthly sense to nobody. And the best sermons I've ever preached is that God gave me an idea and I came to the pulpit, whether it's in a classroom or in a church or on a street corner and just said, this is the thought that God wants me to preach and preach that. And whether they're good sermons or not, I'm not saying, but they're the best sermons I've ever preached because they're done by faith. God wants me to talk about this tonight. And I'm going to talk about this. And you don't, you don't have to hype that stuff up. You don't, have to, you don't have to add nothing to it. Just throw the faith in there and let's see how this shakes out. And it always shakes out right. Because if you believe on Him, you never be ashamed. For whoso, whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. I'm going to preach tonight because I believe on Him. That works. It's good.